0: Kia ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora ko Erica Wilkinson tene. He kona i purangi tēnei, e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. This is part two of our interview with Kiwi expert, Tim Raymakers. In part one, Tim shared some of his favourite stories from his work with rare species, including yarns about kākāpō and kiwi, and a rather unusual story about a vampire tōtōwai, Robin. In part two, we delve into the work behind the Fiordland Kiwi Diaries, Doc's exclusive mini-series about the work to save Tokaweka Kiwi in Fiordland. We get into the nitty-gritty of threats to Kiwi survival and how and why we use 1080, Here's part two of the Doc Sounds of Science podcast with Tim Raymakers.
1: there have been some sort of pretty big highs and lows in the Kiwi project, and those stick with me, not because they were sort of particularly unique, but because they had quite a lot of emotional impact. You might know that we were monitoring Kiwi for three years at Shire Lake prior to there ever being any predator control in the area, and we had zero survival of the Kiwi chicks during that time. Most of those were due to stoat predation. And then after three years, we finally got the predator control that we'd been waiting for, and it was looking really, really good. We had no stoats turning up at cameras on nests. We had no stoats turning up on tracking tunnels. We had chicks that had arrived and were surviving longer than chicks ever had. And then come sort of December, we hit the point where the new cohort of stoats arrive so they've been up in a den all these little baby stoats and they sort of spill out into the landscape and you have a lot more stoats than you might otherwise have so basically almost all the stoats had been controlled by the 1080 operation that had been done but there were still one or two around and they sort of turned into a a handful more. There were still hardly any around, but they found our kiwi chicks. Stoats are amazing predators. They're really good at finding kiwi chicks. That's why we're monitoring kiwi chicks directly. That's the, the only way to really find out if it's working, because you can be looking for stoats and not finding them. But if you look at kiwi chicks, then you'll get your answer. And we found that some of our Kiwi chicks were still getting killed by Stokes and, you know, I'd had really high hopes and was feeling pretty optimistic that we were making a really positive difference. And suddenly it looked like we might just be the same old story of no Kiwi chicks surviving. And that was a pretty big hit to morale and yeah, something I found really tough to deal with. You know, I'd been working towards it for nearly four years at that point and it looked like it was all going to go down the pan and that was that. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was a pretty tough moment. But then set against that, there've also been some really good highs. And just a few months later, some of those Kiwi chicks that did survive hit uh, what we call the sort of stoat-safe weight. So when they get to about six months old or about a kilo, then they're big enough and feisty enough and strong enough to fend off a stoat. And going to meet the first chicks as part of that study that had ever made it and sort of through the danger zone, and we're basically going to be pretty safe for... The rest of their lives for decades. That was a pretty special moment, and being like, "Yes, this is this is what we're here for. Uh, we've been a part of this, and those sort of, you know, these birds have had a future, and we've been a part of that." So yeah, that was that was that definitely still sticks in the mind, even though it was a couple of years ago now.
0: Oh, I bet you'd never forget that. I feel like it takes quite a lot of stoicism and, and morale to get through the three years that you. That you did. Let's talk about Fiordland Kiwi Diaries. Some of our listeners will have watched the three-part series that Tim stars in. It is on the doc YouTube if you haven't found it. Uh, Tim, what's the series about and how did it start?
1: Uh, I guess the series is charting what we're doing or trying to do for Kiwi in Fjordland uh, and how. So there's a few different components to it and we're trying to do predator control in Areas that have kiwi, but they don't have any protection. And the Shy Lake Kiwi Monitoring Program is about monitoring the kiwi to make sure that we're doing that in the best way and getting the results that we think we are. So we're not just doing a bunch of predator control and assuming it's working. We're actually testing it and we're saying, how can we do this the best way? And that's quite a long and involved process. It takes years. Um, I guess the kiwi series is kind of charting that, that, that story from what's the status quo for most Kiwi in Fjordland and what happens when we intervene to try and improve the situation. Uh, and so it was, you know, the filming for that started before we had that answer. So it's been done in quite a genuine way, I think, of actually kind of charting that story. It's not acted, you know? <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, I guess it just like follows that, that journey.
0: So during the filming, you would have got through to the results. What what kind of results did you get?
1: Well, prior to the predator control over three years, we monitored 34 kiwi chicks and zero of those survived. Um, probably 80% plus of those were killed by stoats and none of them made it to more than about six weeks old, which is a long way from the, the six months they need to get to to be safe. So like it was just absolutely hopeless, getting nowhere. It was worse than we expected. We knew it wasn't going to be great, but it was worse than we expected. And after the 1080 operation, we saw that we had probably it was just over 20% survival of the kiwi chicks in those couple of years. Not all of those dead ones were due to stoats. There was a variety of other reasons with his livestock there's dead stock, and in a hard environment, and kiwi do have some natural predators as well. But yeah, stoats are the big thing, and they're the thing we can control. Uh, so. I was probably hoping that we would have slightly better survival than that, but basically the numbers have been run by um, the science experts and it looks like that is enough to grow that kiwi population. So that was our goal, was to take a declining kiwi population and turn it into a growing kiwi population and then to just keep refining how we can do that best. So uh, it looks like we're achieving that. And oh. that's that's great. That's what we're here for.
0: Can you tell us about the terrain that you're navigating?
1: Yeah, it's hard. (laughs) Fjordland is really steep and uh, really rugged and really wet. It's a difficult place to work, and it's really remote as well. So our study site at Shy Lake is just a little piece of the wider 1080 control area. So what we're doing is a sample, a representative sample. And we chose that site because it's the easiest place in the area to work. That's the place that we can actually do the study. So everywhere else is a little bit harder. This place has got some nice terraces you can follow around and get around the cliffs and things. Whereas everywhere else in the area is just like a swampy valley and then a cliff and then there's some sort of gnarly tops. So I think it would be extremely difficult to have an effective trapping program there. I think the gaps between the trap lines would be too big. And I think it would be probably dangerous to try. People would get hurt. And it would be incredibly expensive as well. It's a really remote site when you're getting people there to do those traps all the time. That's that's really expensive, you know? It, um, it's a helicopter ride to get out there every time or an even more expensive boat ride. The other thing about a trapping program, it's really good in some places, right? There's Horses for Courses. We've got big trapping programs in Fiordland that are successful, but there are reasons why they're good for those sites. For example, on nearby Resolution Island, we've got a trapping program, but 1080 is not really an option for us there because it doesn't have rats and we need the rats to get the 1080 to the stoats.
0: Tim, you mentioned you need rats in order to get it to the stoats. Can you just walk us through that?
1: Yeah, that's right. We don't currently have a way to deliver 1080 directly to stoats. So the 1080 is in a little cereal pellet um, that gets uh, dropped from a helicopter and the rats eat the pellet and then the stoats eat what is now a toxic dead rat. And that's how the stoats get killed. So we don't have a way to directly deliver The toxin to those stoats at the moment. So we actually are dependent on having some rats, which are a problem in themselves, to get 1080 into stoats. But what we've discovered in this project is that we probably don't need as many rats as we thought. So typically a lot of aerial 1080 operations around the country are focused on really big spikes in the rat population driven by Um, elevated fruiting levels in the forest and they are those operations are happening to combat extinction risks to the populations of those sites of the species we're trying to save so we're like oh there's going to be like 10 times as many rats as there normally are and that's going to be really really bad news for kiwi it's a little bit different kiwi are big enough that rats aren't really a direct threat to them like that it's just stoats that we care about and what we have seen in this project is that you can get effective control of stoats from a starting population of rats, which is way lower than those operations normally happen. And that actually opens some doors for us. That's, that's really good news because it means we can do those operations kind of anytime instead of being tied into those big spikes in the rat population, which means that there's a bit of a queue to get a lot of operations through at the same time. So this really gives us an opportunity to protect Kiwi uh, across big scales that we, we didn't necessarily have before.
0: Ooh, there's a lot of strategic planning that must go into that. So so the breeding pace of kiwi versus stoats, is that the heart of the problem?
1: Uh, it's certainly up there. <laughs> um, I, I think that, yeah, so stoats in a really good year where they've got abundant food, uh, uh, a female stoat might produce. So I think it's up to like 14 kits in a season. And then, if it's a good season and the, that abundant food stays there, then those fourteen kits might survive through to the next season. And stoats run on a really high motor; hey, they're always active. They need to be eating a lot, and so they're just kind of bombing around the place, killing whatever they can find all the time, cashing it for later for harder times. So they're, you know, it doesn't take that many stoats to be having a really big impact on the system. Whereas kiwi, they live life in the slow rate, slowly, and they live for a long time. They'll mostly produce one chick a year at best and it it takes them a long time to build up a population so you know a first doat needs to sort of eat the equivalent of a kiwi chick every couple of days and the kiwi chicks the kiwi are only making one chick a year you, you, you can see it doesn't really add up
0: no it doesn't and you say 14 kits in the season and then they're also when the kit starts out isn't it already on its way to having children?
1: It sure is. This is pretty creepy. So when the uh, this, this female stoat kits in a nest that are still kind of blind and hairless, the male that mated with the adult female, the mother, will come back, or some other male, any male that can find the nest, will come back and impregnate all those little female stoat kit babies. And so they will then they will then hold them hold that pregnancy over the years they go out and into the environment. And whilst they won't actually have babies of their own until the following spring, they're, they're primed, they're ready, and that's what makes them so good at dispersing. So if they go into a new place, like say they invade an island that doesn't have stoats, they don't need to meet a male there. They're already pregnant and they're already ready. They're just a ticking time bomb. Oh my gosh, that
0: is one of the most disgusting nature facts I've ever heard. Uh, it's fascinating, but it's horrible. What was it like having someone follow your work um, with a camera?
1: I actually found it really fun doing the filming work. I've done some filming work before, both at Shirelight with Kiwi and with, um, uh, in the Kakapo Recovery Program as well. And yeah, it's really nice. It's, the nature of the site means that you can't have like a big elaborate setup. It's just one or maybe two people and the cameras are really small now. And so they just come around in the hill with us and they do what we do. And it's a really collaborative thing, especially making this series. Um, then Belle, the director, and Lucy, when she came out, they're, they're part of Doc. They're motivated by the same things that we are. We're all there for the same goal. And so we're working together. It was really fun. I, I'm always keen to kind of explain what we're trying to do, because I definitely feel like we're fighting the good fight. <laughs> and it was it was just a fun opportunity to get out there and do our job, um, but with a few extra tea breaks.
0: So uh, onto Field and Kiwi Diaries, the, the narrative. So the series follows that process. Um, and you've mentioned that some chicks uh, were unfortunately killed. What happened to the Stoats come back? Was that reinvasion?
1: I think uh, initially it's hard to be exactly sure. What we did see was that Prior to the 1080 operation, we were seeing stoats appearing on the cameras that were outside 90 percent of our kiwi nests. They were they were everywhere, and they were coming back. You could see them coming back, and it's just a matter of time before they encounter that little kiwi chick that's got to go out every time, every night, and feed. You know, so you know, and as soon as they just bump into them once, then it's curtains, and they're leaving a central. We were also seeing stoats on the tracking tunnels, which is a tool that DOC uses for monitoring pest levels. In the environment basically we were seeing loads of evidence of stoats all over the place then we did the 1080 operation and we stopped seeing any of that evidence there was hardly anything around there was nothing on the tracking tunnels i think we did see one stoat on a camera that wasn't at a nest once Um, it's really hard for us to say, was that a stoat that managed to kind of sneak through? It just didn't happen to bump into a toxic rat and it survived, or maybe it had come back into the block because they can go for 70 kilometers. They're, They're amazing travelers when they want to be. So we can't say exactly where that stoat came from, but what we could see was that very, very low numbers of stoats that were almost undetectable were still enough to be killing some of our kiwi. And so after the drop, we did see that after a really good promising start, we did see that some of our kiwi were still kiwi chicks were still killed by stoats. And that was super demoralizing. Um, You know, you want everything to be perfect. You want to do, 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 do the best you can for the birds and you want, you want it to be succeeding. But ultimately as the season panned out it was a real roller coaster (laughs) emotionally but we did actually see that it came to a positive conclusion in the end because we said had some of those kiwi chicks make it and enough to be growing that population and yeah overall basically we did do i think what we set out to do and i think the other thing to remember is that that year that that predator control ho- operation happened was an unprecedented beach mast. And a beach mast is when the uh, native beach trees in the forest produce extra high levels of seed. That means there's loads of food for rats, and the rats go, Poof, they spike. And then there's loads of food for stoats in the form of rats, and the stoats go, Poof, they spike. So the reinvasion pressure from outside of the predator control area would have been unusually high. There's gonna be a lot of hungry stoats roaming around and they're gonna be coming back into this area that doesn't have any kind of incumbent stoats or very few incumbent stoats. So that is a reason why we are still doing the monitoring program right now. So we've just done another 1080 operation three years later and we're going to see in what we consider a little bit more of a kind of you know normal state of play what what the uh, what, what the result is? I'm cautiously optimistic that we're actually going to see higher survival this time around. but time will tell.
0: It's such a roller coaster, like you have talked about, and you're going through it, and you're uh, you know you really care about conservation. That's why you're in this role. You must feel beaten down by the process at times. How how do you and the team keep up that moral? Is it is it just an eyes on the prize focus thing?
1: That's exactly it. Um, That's the goal that we've got to do, and we can't expect it to be easy the whole time. Uh, Someone said to me not too long ago, oh man, conservation is really a two steps forward, one step back game, isn't it? And that is so true. You've got to stick at it, and you've got to keep learning and improving. That wider kind of 1080 operation thing is supported by a really good network and loads of control and loads of thinking and loads of science, um, both within and outside of Doc. And we've just got to We've got to learn from what we see and then we've got to use the those lessons to get better. And yeah, you, you just got to keep at it because if you stop, you might as well have never started because things will eventually just go back to how they were and how they were isn't good enough.
0: No, how they were is not good enough. Uh, two steps forward, one step back seems like quite an investment, but one that is well worth it. <laughs> so the kiwi that you're working with, Tokueka kiwi are a tongue species to Naitahu. Does your work involve keeping iwi informed about what's happening with kiwi?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, so under the Titoriti then Doc's got to protect Māori interests, and quite rightly, um, including Taonga in our big backyard. So, yeah, our job is to kind of be caretakers and managers for this species and, and, and try and preserve them. So as part of setting up this project, then um, we... Engaged with Papati Purunaka uh, in Murhiku, Southland and Fjordland. And I give a little presentation to them about what they um, what the project was about and basically just got sort of broad support. Away you go. That sounds like a good thing to do. And so that's what we do. <laughs> um, uh, we've had some names gifted to the chicks. The first chick of the study uh, had a name gifted to it, and also once we had some chicks that we really thought were going to survive <laughs> and had a had a shot once that predator control had come, then, um, they, yeah, they were, had some names gifted to them by Oraka Parima um, of the local Runaka as well. Uh, in the interim, we kind of pretty quickly stopped naming the chicks before that predator control because it didn't last very long. <laughs> it wasn't really worth it. Um, but, uh, yeah, now there's some that uh, carry some of those names that have been gifted. Um, and then I guess another sort of way that we try and engage in on an ongoing basis is uh, when we handle kiwi or um, if we're messing around in a nest or something, then sometimes they'll shed some feathers and we'll collect those and pass them on um, to Orca Farina.
0: Oh, fantastic. Do kiwi feathers smell in the same way that a kākāpō? I thought it was musk, musky smell.
1: They have a very distinctive smell, which I find really difficult to put into words. It's a sort of... (laughs) It's it's quite earthy, but with a little bit of a sort of sharper tang to it as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I find it hard to liken to anything else. It's a, yeah, It smells like a kiwi.
0: <laughs> Something that a lot of people won't get to smell. So that's pretty exciting to, to hear it from you. Let's talk about the green elephant in the room. Some people really don't like 1080. If anyone doesn't know, 1080 is a biodegradable toxin. It's aerially applied to control predator numbers. Most people who don't like it either don't understand how it works or they have no idea of the urgency or the loss that we're facing without it, or they've received misinformation or disinformation. What do you think about the often vocal response about our use of this tool at Doc?
1: Everyone has the right to an opinion, but I don't share it. And some of the things that get said about our motivations are um, pretty off the wall. I don't get up in the morning excited to kill things. I get up in the morning excited to save species. And we have a choice to make. You can choose stoats or kiwi. You can choose rats or peka-peka. You can't have both. You just can't. And doing nothing is a choice in itself. Everyone will fall differently on that scale. For me, that choice is pretty easy. And so much work, so much work has gone into making sure that we use 1080 safely and appropriately. It's really tightly controlled, not just by DOC, but by several agencies. I'm Planning a ten eighty operation myself at the moment for the first time, and the the level of detail and careful work that has to go into it is is you know is pretty impressive. And you know, we I don't just decide oh I'm going to do some ten eighty and go out and do it. You know, I have to get permissions from various other agencies and all sorts. And if what we're doing isn't managed carefully and safely and appropriately. We don't get that permission. So um, there's a lot of history to 1080, and that's part of the issue. You know, In the past, quite a long time ago now, it has been used in ways that wouldn't be acceptable now. And I think there's a bit of a kind of cultural legacy of that um, among people who are not supporters of 1080. But I do quite often think it's interesting that this is the tool that gets all the hate, because the rat poisons sold in the local hardware store are way nastier.
0: A good thing to take away. Um, In terms of the goal that we've got, this crazy ambitious goal to be predator-free by 2050, what can we learn from Shy Lake?
1: So Shy Lake has a pretty specific focus, which is about what we need to do for Kiwi in remote parts of Fjordland. And predator-free 2050 is obviously a wider goal. It's about protecting everything. Um, One of the things that we are learning, though, as part of that work is we're working in a, a new environment. Historically, we haven't done a lot of work in Western Fiordland, except on some of our big special islands out there. And this is the first 1080 operation that's taken place sort of that far away from civilization, if you like. And we're learning quite a lot about the intricacies of the pest population dynamics out there in an environment where we haven't undertaken 1080 operations before partly because it's so remote and therefore expensive. And what we're doing there isn't revolutionary. It's about refining the work that's come before and expanding our vision and scale. I think uh, it comes as a surprise to quite a lot of people that only 20% of Fjordland has predator control of any kind. We need to be really ambitious if we're going to scale that up to a predator-free 2050 kind of level. Often people assume that basically the whole conservation estate is getting 1080 laid on it all the time. That's not the case at all. We've got way more to do, but we are trending in the right direction.
0: That is really interesting. And I I didn't actually know that about Fiordland that it's only 20%. What's your next conservation challenge?
1: Well, I'm currently planning a 1080 operation. That's my first time doing that. So it's definitely a steep learning curve. Uh, it's definitely not as glamorous as uh, cuddling Kiwi chicks on camera, <laughs> but there's what it's all about. Hey? There's where we do our conservation. Uh, if we don't do this step, nothing happens and there's where I can make the biggest difference. So uh, I'm quite motivated to do it, actually.
0: Understandable. Tim, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I feel like you are trying to make the positive change that we all want to see in conservation for Aotearoa. I feel like there's a lot up against Kiwi, the scent trail, the long lived, slow breeding, all of that. But we've got you on our side, so it's not going too badly. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Kia ora, And of course, it's not just me. Um, I think the future for Kiwi is bright because people all over New Zealand want that to happen and where there's will, there's way.
0: Kia ora If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you watch the Fiordland Kiwi Diaries. All three episodes are available now on the Doc YouTube. Episode one introduces you to the Tokaweka Monitoring Project. Episode two is about the 1080 drop itself, and episode three is the long-awaited results with a roller coaster of emotion right the way through. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Erica Wilkinson, and this has been the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can stream it off our website, doc.govt.nz. This show is produced by Jane Ramage with editing by Lucy Holyoke. If you enjoyed this episode, show us some love with a five-star rating.